knowing most of you as well as I do, I know that a few of us have ever had to worry about the stringent admission standards for Ivy League universities. And lest you think I'm making fun of y'all, I went to Caldwell Community College and Technical Institute. That's Harvard on the highway, right on 321 in Hudson, North Carolina. And the admission standards there are basically you go into a room with somebody from administration and they say, which hand is the rock in? And if you can get that, then uh, some of y'all still don't know. So maybe you're not going to go to CCC and TI. But you know that those Ivy League schools are, are notoriously hard to get into. In fact, they turn down every year 90% of the applicants that try to get into Harvard, Yale, Brown, Cornell, those kinds of places. And they're so hard to get into that a group of students is actually suing Harvard. You may have heard about this on the news. They're suing Harvard because they feel like they were unfairly discriminated against. And they are being led by a student by the name of Michael Wang. And on paper, Michael Wang is the perfect incoming freshman for any Ivy League university. Here is just a sample of his high school resume. His GPA was 4.67. He had a perfect ACT score. 2230 on his SAT. He started the math team at his high school, and he was a part of the debate team. I mean, of course he was. But... um, He was so accomplished in high school that he actually sang in the choir that performed at President Obama's first inauguration. And yet here's what Michael Wang has going against him. Michael Wang is Chinese. He's an Asian American. And Asian Americans, here's the basis of the lawsuit. Asian Americans perform so much better than every other group of students that they have to actually, they claim that Ivy League universities have to actively discriminate against Asian American students lest they're all Asian Americans so that they can meet their affirmative action quotas. And so Michael Wayne says, this is not fair. He said, I did so great. And yet he said, no matter how good I am, he said, it wasn't good enough. And I wonder today, as we settle into another Sunday morning worship service, how many of you think that your relationship to God is a lot like Michael Wayne trying to get into Harvard? That you've got to just have everything absolutely perfect on paper. Some of you feel that way. I would say that the majority of people sitting in churches like ours today, deep down, that's the way they think that all of this works. It's about being good, impressing God, and getting good things from Him. And some of you believe that, and some of you think you're doing really, really good. You think you are a great person. Surely God is for people just like you, like Michael Wang, as it were. You've got the perfect 4.67 GPA, the ACT score, the SAT score. You have got it all down. But I think if we could look below the surface in your heart today, maybe we would see that sometimes you're self-righteous and self-reliant. And using the good things about you to actually keep your distance from Jesus. Then others of y'all, maybe you believe that God is only for the good, and you know you're not very good. you got some skeletons in your closet. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Department knows you're not very good. And you think, if God is for the good, then God can never be for somebody like me. Well, today, I'm glad that we get to study the Bible together, because we are going to look at one of my favorite scenes from the life of Jesus where we get to learn this one critical fact that is at the very center of everything we believe and everything we do. And I pray that you get this and take it home with you today. Here it is. It's this important idea. Jesus is for everybody who needs Him. But He's only for those who need Him. 
And I want to show you this today in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 9. And I'm going to ask when you find your place here to stand with me, to honor God's Word, rest yourself for just a moment. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 9. The Bible says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You may be seated, and I believe God's going to help us as we look into His Word today. Now, for most of us, the way we think about Jesus, we think Jesus is always well-behaved and Jesus is always nice and tidy. And certainly Jesus was perfect, but because Jesus was perfect, believe it or not, he hung around with imperfect people, which meant he stayed in a lot of trouble. Jesus was almost always in some kind of controversy in his life. He said something that put him on the wrong side of certain people, or he did something that another group of people may not like. And as you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you see that Jesus almost always stays on the bad side of people who are religious, educated, powerful, wealthy, and otherwise salt-of-the-earth type people. Jesus almost always stays in trouble. And we read about a passage of Scripture here in Matthew 9 where Jesus is in trouble. So what has Jesus done here that is so stinking terrible? Well, he dared to have supper with the wrong kinds of people. And so the right kinds of people look at this and say, you know, if Jesus is for people like that, then we're not sure that we want Jesus to be for us. And we certainly are not going to be for Him. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the previous passage of Scripture where Jesus heals a crippled man and claims to have the authority to forgive sins. Now Matthew is going to write to show us that Jesus uses his authority to forgive sin to people who actually need forgiveness. That he gives it to those that need it. And so here in this passage, as Jesus sits down for this dinner with sinners, he's really there's really two groups of people here. They're the people that are having Jesus for dinner the people that have invited him to come, the people that he's fellowshipping with and breaking bread with and visiting with and enjoying their company. And then there is over in the corner, in the shadows, there's another group of people that are having Jesus for dinner. They're not eating, eating with him, but they are chewing him up and spitting him out because he's not doing what they think he ought to do. And this is going to set the stage for three conversations that I want us to consider from this passage of Scripture as we talk about having Jesus for dinner. And if we listen to the conversation around the dinner table this day in Matthew chapter number 9, 
then I think we are going to hear this one inescapable fact directly from the lips of Jesus that he is for everyone who needs him. But he's only for those who need him. The first conversation that takes place really is an invitation. And it starts in verse number 9. With this remarkable story that Jesus comes to a tax collector named Matthew and he says to him, follow me. And this, this one verse of Scripture is remarkable, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, it's remarkable because we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. This is where the author of the book meets the subject of the book. This is where he comes into the story. And it's an amazing passage where we read about Matthew leaving everything to follow Jesus. Where did it begin? Well, for Matthew, it started right here when Jesus came by the office one day as he was counting his tax revenue and said, Matthew, you come follow me. But the real reason this is remarkable may not be immediately on the surface, and that is because tax collectors like Matthew were the most hated group of people in Israel during the life of Jesus. Some of y'all thinking, hey man, preacher, I can relate to that. I don't care much for him either. Well, hey, the closer it gets to April 15th, I'm right there with you. But to understand why they were so hated, they're not just government bureaucrats that's sitting in an office. These are, these are our government-sponsored thieves. So here's, here's how Rome rigged their taxation system. Of course, Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. And Rome needs money to do what Rome's going to do. And so they say, we're going to tax this certain um, group of our subjects, this region. And what they would say is they would say, we think that we need to get, say, a billion dollars a year in tax revenue from this region. What they would do is they would franchise out that taxation to people who would come along and make a bid on it. So I might come along and say, well, uh, you say you need a billion dollars worth of tax revenue. I can get you 1.2. And some other guy says, man, I can get you 1.4. Somebody else says, I can get you 1.5. And whoever the highest bidder was would get the opportunity to tax that region. And he would be able to say, I will bring you the 1.5 billion. But Rome would say to him, anything you get above the 1.5, you get to keep. And so that level of corruption and greed worked all the way down to people like Matthew who had a certain quota they had to meet. And with the legal backing of the Roman Empire, they could go and take your money. They could take whatever they wanted as long as you didn't revolt on them. And they could keep the difference. These are people filled with greed. These are people who are lining their pockets. They were hated. Because here's Matthew who is born as a Jew robbing his people to put money in the pockets of the soldiers who are walking their streets. But there's more to it than that, I think, in the life of Matthew. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this in his gospel. But the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, they tell us that Matthew's Jewish name, do you remember what it was? It's Levi. Matthew's Jewish name was Levi. And if you remember from the Old Testament, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. And eventually, the the family of Levi grew and grew and grew until they became one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was from the tribe of Levi that all of the priests, all of the workers in the temple, that all of the people who were the professionals for God, all of those people were Levites. And so it's very likely, if Matthew's name was Levi, that he was a Levite, that he was from this tribe, probably raised as a child, knowing and believing, Levi, when you grow up, you are going to work in the temple of our God. You are going to pray for your people. You are going to represent them. You are going to hear their prayers. You are going to bless them when they come and worship and confess their sins. And you are going to make sacrifices. And yet here, somewhere along the way, Levi walked away from his destiny. He walked away from his calling. He walked away from his family. And he turned his back on everything. 
He turned his back on God. He turned his back on his family. He turned his back on his nation. He turned his back on the values he was raised with. All in the name of opportunity and naked ambition and greed. He walked away and said, I will forge my own path. Any of y'all ever done that? And so Matthew was hated for every reason you could imagine. And every day as people brought their money, he was probably cursed He was probably spit on. He was probably treated worse than dirt because of his job. But then one day, a carpenter from Nazareth walked by and said, Matthew, Levi, why don't you come and follow me? And I love the simplicity of this story, don't you? Matthew got up and went. That's what you do when Jesus invites. You go. But the amazing thing about this here is that Jesus invited Him, this man that was unwanted, that was unwelcome, that was worthless, that had turned his back on everything that was valuable and important. Jesus said, that's the one that I'm going to call to myself. And when he said to him those two words, follow me, he said everything to him, didn't he? He said, Matthew, I want you to know you may be hated by everybody else, but you're loved by me. Matthew, you might be rejected by the world around you, but I want you. He's saying, Matthew, I know you have a past, but you can walk away from your past and follow me, and you can share your life with me. And friends, I want you to hear me today. This is the same invitation that Jesus gives to us. He says to all of us, no matter what your past has been, no matter what sin you carry, no matter what guilt you have, Jesus comes to us and He says, you can come and follow me. You are wanted, you are loved, you are welcome. Come and share life with me that's the invitation that Jesus gives on the next page of my Bible Jesus says to a crowd of people he says in Matthew 11 come he said come take my yoke upon you he said come and learn of me he said come all of you who are weary and are heavy laden all of you who are worn out by your sin all of you who are disappointed by your life all of you who have let down your family all of you who have disappointed yourselves all of you who can take inventory and say it has not turned out the way I thought it would turn out Jesus says you are welcome to come and follow me he said come and take my yoke upon you He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm here today to let you know as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you are welcome to follow Him no matter where He finds you. No matter where you start with Him, you are welcome to start today and you are welcome to start now. Come and follow Him. I love the way one preacher said about this. His name's Douglas Sean O'Donnell, the most Irish name anybody's ever had. He said, Christ almost... He said, Christ stands close to those who know they are far from Him. And so Matthew gets up and he leaves everything to go and follow Jesus. You can do the same thing. But Matthew's story isn't over, is it? Because the Bible says in verse number 10 that Jesus reclines at table in the house. And then many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. Basically what you see here is that Matthew has been invited to follow Jesus and he wants to extend that invitation to other people. So he goes probably to his office. I think this is Matthew's retirement party. Like he's leaving the tax office and he's going to follow Jesus so they've got him a sheet cake and some balloons and some plastic cups and everybody's sitting around at Matthew's retirement party and he says to all of his tax collectors, all of those hated and unwanted people, he says to them, I want to introduce you to a man who wants you. And so they all come at Matthew's house and they all hang out and they're enjoying a good time with Jesus. And it reminds us of the important fact, folks, 
that those who have been invited to experience Jesus want to invite other people to experience Him. That if we've met Him, if we have responded to this invitation, we want to extend that invitation to other people. And we want to say to them, you are welcome to come to Jesus. So who could you invite? Who could you invite? Who do you know today that needs Him? Some of you have written a name down on a Who's Your One card and you've been praying this month for them. You've been lifting them up to the Lord. Some of you have been fasting so that they would come to know Jesus. Some of you may even be here today because somebody has prayed you in this building. And thank God for that. But friends, this story reminds us of why we do that. Because somewhere along the way, we heard Jesus say to us, why don't you come and follow me out of that sin? And we want to say to other people, we know a man who can change you. We know a man who loves you. Thank God we know a man who wants you. And his name is Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, as we'll see, in just a second, the Pharisees, the well-to-do religious people in Jesus' day, they didn't want anything to do with tax collectors and sinners, did they? So they're not going to hang out with Matthew. So who's Matthew going to invite? He's going to invite tax collectors and sinners. But the problem that a lot of us have today is that we've been saved for so long, we don't know anybody that needs Jesus anymore, do we? We're afraid to hang out with sinners, and we're afraid to be around lost people because we think they're going to catch their cooties, you know? We don't, we don't want their sin rubbing off on us, so we try and keep a safe distance and stay here in our church bubble locked away. And folks, I'm a pastor. I've got the same problem. Everything I do is with church people or preparing stuff for sermons or whatever else. So here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that this week your dryer breaks down, your toilet clogs, your refrigerator falls out, and so that some repairman has to come into your home who needs Jesus and you can tell him about Jesus. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Not really, I'm not really praying that for you. But I am encouraging you, I am encouraging you, those who experience Jesus do everything they can to bring other people to experience Him. And so you have an invitation, first to Matthew and then from Matthew. But then you move into the second conversation in this passage of Scripture. I hope that's not expensive if I have to pay to break that. Maybe that repairman needs Jesus when he's going to come fix it. (laughs) The second conversation is interrogation. We need to tear that wall down so I can get some preaching room in here. There's an interrogation in this passage here. Matthew's excited about meeting Jesus. We assume that Jesus is excited about being with Matthew's buddies, and his buddies are excited about this opportunity to find somebody who really wants them. Not everybody's excited. Verse number 11, every party has a pooper, and here they are. The Pharisees saw this. Now, most of you, I'm sure, know the Pharisees. They're the bad guys of the Bible, aren't they? But they were the good guys in that culture. These are people that valued the Word of God, that believed in God, that were in favor of traditional Jewish values and believed it was their responsibility to keep uh, counter uh, ideas at bay, to push away any encroachment from pagan philosophy. So they're not going to care much for tax collectors who are working for a foreign pagan government. The Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the Messiah. If he really is God, or if he really is from God, then why is he not hanging out with God's people? That's what they're asking. Why is he hanging out? What, you mean to tell us that, that God's moving where sinners are? That surely can't be right. Surely can't be right. Surely God belongs to people like us. Jesus overhears this conversation, and he interrupts it. Verse number 12, and he says to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Jesus uses this medical analogy and he quotes from the prophet Hosea in verse number 13 then comes back to it kind of in a a way 
to simply say, listen, you Pharisees are so self-righteous and so self-reliant and so convinced of your own goodness that you're never going to come to me because you don't see how much you need me. These people, he says, sitting at this table, these people, they know they need me. Those are the people that I came to heal. Those are the people I came to forgive. He's showing us in this passage of Scripture, is he not, that grace is for those that actually need it. That grace is for people who don't have it together. It's for people who really do have sin that needs to be forgiven. It really is for people whose lives are a mess. Jesus says, those are the people that I came for. And he wants to prove this point to the Pharisees by taking them back to the Bible. That's always a good thing to do when a religious person wants to complain to you. So Jesus does. He says, let's, re- well, let's read the Bible together. He said, don't you remember? Have you not read? Go and learn what this means. He quotes from the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse number 6. And that says, the Lord here says to the people, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now the theme of Hosea's prophecy really could be synthesized just that Hosea is calling out the nation of Israel for their spiritual adultery. So the nation of Israel has this unique covenant relationship with God. They're supposed to be dedicated to God, walking with the Lord, faithful to Him. But their hearts were always drawn to other gods. Their hearts were always drawn to other things. And the Lord compares that to adultery. He says, you have left what should be your true love, and you've given your heart and you've given yourself away to all of these other things. And Hosea is saying to the people, listen, you are spiritual adulterers, and because your relationship with God is not right, your relationship with everybody else is wrong too. And he says, you're cheating one another, you're mistreating one another, your society is filled from injustice from top to bottom. But what the people were doing in Hosea's day was this. Even though their hearts belonged to these other gods, they still had it in their minds. If we go to the temple and make our sacrifices, if we say our prayers, and if we go through the rituals and the ceremonies, then God has to bless us. Jesus is quoting this verse to say to the Pharisees exactly what Hosea said to the people in his day. God is not interested in external tradition. He's interested in internal transformation. He came to change hearts. And he's saying to the Pharisees, what you guys need, you need a heart transplant. Because on the outside, it's all together. But on the inside, you are corrupt and you are wicked. God's heart is a heart that is full of mercy. And because his heart is full of mercy, God is compassionate to those who need his mercy. He's compassionate to those that are sick spiritually, who are unwell. Jesus says, I am the great physician of your souls, and I did not come to compliment the healthy on how great they're doing. He said, I came to minister to the spiritually sick. I came to patch them back together. I came to fix them back up. He said, I didn't come to do anything for you self-righteous, religious people who think you are so good you don't need grace. Jesus said, I won't help you and I can't help you until you realize how much you need me. And this this should be for us today. As church people, this should be a bucket of cold water on our heads. Why? Because Jesus did not hang out with people like us. He didn't. Because we're too good. We're too proud. We're too self-important. We're too self-righteous. We're too self-sufficient. We're too self-reliant. And we've forgotten how much we need Him. Jesus says, I came to the sick. That's what a good doctor does, right? A good doctor goes to people who need him. 
And so if we're here this morning and we think, well, I'm so religious, I'm so Baptist, I'm so good enough, and I've got it all together morally and ethically, and I'm doing so good that I really can keep Jesus at arm's length, you are fooling yourself. Because the Bible says to us in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23 that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. To use Hosea's term, we are all spiritual adulterers who are made to know God, who are made to enjoy God and glorify Him, and we've given our hearts that should belong to God to anything and everything else. And we've, we've, we've thrown away our love that should go to God. We've thrown that away on a million different counterfeits. So some of us are in this story exactly like Matthew. And we've walked away from God and we've ran from God right into our ambitions, right into our greed, right into our self-indulgence, trying to make a life for ourselves, trying to chase some pleasure, trying to have a good time, and trying to build something for the future. We've ran away from Jesus doing that. But others of us are so religious and self-righteous that we're keeping Jesus at arm's length because we don't need Him. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture. But friends, if we believe today like the Pharisees, that we can know God because of how good we are, then we do not understand Jesus. We do not understand how He thought about His ministry and how He thought about His work because He came, He says, to have mercy. And all religion teaches us, all religion without Jesus teaches us, is that we should be good, and if we are good, then we could get to God. That's probably what some of y'all came to church expecting and hoping to hear today. You expected to hear a pat on the back because of how good you are. And how faithful you are. How you come to church and how you give and how you vote a certain way. Are you expected to come today and be beat up because you're not good enough? That's what religion does. And it does not matter what religion is. That's why in Islam they say that you need to have the right confession of faith in Allah as the one God and Muhammad as his prophet. You need to pray five times a day and travel to Mecca and give alms to the poor. You've got to be good and then Allah will bless you. That's why... Baptists will say, you've got to volunteer at Vacation Bible School. You've got to pay your tithes and maybe go on a short-term mission trip every other summer. You've got to do those things, and then God will bless you, and God will bless your family. If you're Catholic, then, you know, you've got to go to church and say the rosary and say Mass and be confirmed and be baptized as a baby. And if you really want to get serious, maybe you should join a convent and become a nun. Do good, and God will be good to you. Jesus says that's not how any of this works. He says, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. I came to call sinners. He said, I have established in a world that has been wrecked by sin an emergency room of grace. And he said, what I do, Jesus said, this is what I'm about. He said, I came for those who are leaking blood, who are falling apart, who are falling to pieces. Jesus says, what I've come to do is I've come to jump on their chest and do CPR and resuscitate them, resurrect them and bring them back to life. And if you want to come in talking about how good your spiritual blood pressure is and how high your numbers are and how you're managing your diet to keep yourself so healthy, Jesus said, I cannot and will not help you because only those who know they are sick need my help and will receive my help. I'll tell you what our problem is. You put it in medical terms. I was thinking about this the other day. Thank God for modern medicine. Me and Brother Butch were just talking about that right before church. Thank God for what they can do. But most of us aren't that far removed from people who believe that if you put Vicks Vaporub on your feet, it would cure pneumonia, right? Like growing up, now my grandparents, seriously, growing up, my grandparents thought that if you had an earache, the thing to do was to blow cigarette smoke in it. Like that's going to fix your ear, but they weren't really worried about your lung development, you know? And if the earache got real bad, there was a rumor that you could pee in that ear and that would fix it. 
It never got that bad, y'all. You think that's so stupid for people to think little folk remedies and ideas like that would fix a serious medical problem. How much more foolish is it for us to have all of these things that manage our sin? How foolish is it for us to think that, well, we come to church every so often and we give a little bit of money and we have our membership on the roll down there at Sharon Heights and, and we've got that in place, so that's going to remedy the problem that's in our heart. That is as dumb as rubbing Vicks Vapor Rub on your feet to cure cold. Thank you. It is not going to, some of y'all are convinced about Vicks, I know, so that may not be the good <laughs> illustration. Jesus is saying to us here, you don't need to manage your sin. Jesus is saying, I did not help you come to, I did not come to help you manage your sin. Jesus says, I came to forgive your sin. I came to give you a new heart and change you from the inside out. But that's only going to be for those who know that they need Him. Most of y'all know when we moved to Birmingham, we moved from a really small town. And so one of the things that amazed me about coming here is how many doctors and hospitals there are. I just floored. And I remember the first three or four months I was pastor here at Sharon Heights, they'd be saying, oh, somebody's having surgery over here and somebody else is having surgery over here. And I was like, I thought I'd been to all the hospitals and y'all got another one down here on 280. I mean, you know, there are hospitals everywhere. Doctors' offices everywhere. There are doctors that can fix your eyes, doctors that can fix your joints, doctors that can fix your bones, doctors that can fix your guts, doctors that can fix your blood. There's even doctors that can freeze your fat for some reason. You go downtown, there's a colorectal institute. Now, I don't know what they do in there. But I promise you, none of those folks are looking forward to going to work tomorrow. But for all those doctors, for all the medical knowledge, for all the money that the city of Birmingham brings in because of medicine and and medical education, for all of that skill and expertise, I want you to hear me today. There isn't a single one of those doctors that can help me right now. You know why? Because there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not sick. I don't need them. As far as I know, my health is as perfect as it can be. And so I'm not going to the doctor for help because I don't need help. Jesus says that spiritually there are a lot of people that are so convinced of their goodness that they think they are perfectly healthy while they're dead on the inside and they're never going to get the help they need. And some of you are in that situation today. And you come into this place every week of your life and you hear about a God who's gracious and a God who forgives and a God who can give you a new start. And you know in your soul that you need that, but you just can't bring yourself to say, I need help. You can't bring yourself in your heart to say, I don't have it all together. And I can't do it on my own. And you're never going to get the help that you need until you do. But there's a third conversation in this passage of Scripture. There's an invitation. There's an interrogation. There's a conversation that passes on some really vital information in verses 14 through 17. It seems like an interruption from the disciples of John the Baptist until you really think about what's happening because they come and ask Jesus a question about fasting. You think, that's really, really weird. Jesus has been talking about doctors and all this kind of stuff, but now, well, it makes sense though because they're having dinner, right? And, and they're arguing about why Jesus is eating with the people he's eating with. And so John's disciples are, happen to be around, I guess, and they say, hey, we've got a question. Speaking of food, Jesus... Why is it that we fast and the Pharisees fast, but you don't make your disciples fast? 
And I don't think they're being critical like the Pharisees were. You notice the Pharisees went to the disciples to question them. They come directly to Jesus. I don't think they're being critical. I think they have a sincere question. It's okay to bring your questions to Jesus. And they bring their question to Jesus. And they say, why do we fast and your disciples don't? To the disciples of John the Baptist, fasting was a sincere and legitimate expression of Judaism. And they're right about that. All throughout the Old Testament, people were fasting. In our Sunday school class today, we talked about Nehemiah in a period of grief who fasted. God commanded in the law that once a year on the Day of Atonement, everybody in the nation of Israel fasted. The Pharisees were so committed to the project of fasting that they fasted every week, every Monday, and every Thursday. Like, Monday's not terrible enough, you know? Let's just add this on top of it. That's why they're always so unhappy in the Bible, because they're hangry. And so, fasting in the Old Testament was about somebody's desperation for God. If you had sinned and you needed forgiveness, you would express that longing to be reconciled to God through a fast. If you had a problem or a decision looming in your mind, or if you felt distant from God, you would do without food for a period of time to say, Lord, I am more hungry for you. I'm more hungry for a right relationship with you or for your direction or for assistance in this area. I'm more hungry for you, Lord, than I am for the food that I need to live. So Jesus wants to answer this question, but he answers it with a question. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, Jesus says, When you go to a wedding, do you go there to mourn, grieve, and weep? Or do you go to celebrate? Hopefully you're going to celebrate. Hopefully you're going to celebrate that two lives are coming together, that love is in the air, and you're seeing the joy on this young couple as they start on life's road together. Jesus says it would be inappropriate for you to come to a wedding and grieve and to starve yourself. You come to eat and you come to feast and you have come to have a good time. At least get a slice of cake. And Jesus is saying it would be as inappropriate for my disciples to fast and starve themselves now while I, the bridegroom, am, am with them. And what Jesus is doing here, I think, is two things. First, he's connecting himself to the Old Testament image from Isaiah chapter 54 that God uses to describe himself as a bridegroom. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. The Lord says to the people of Israel, I love you the way a faithful husband loves his bride. And Jesus is saying, I am that God who loves his people like that. And Jesus says, while I'm here physically with my disciples, it would be wrong for them to fast because they are celebrating that God has come. That verse that they read just a moment ago as uh, the praise band led us in worship from Isaiah chapter 25 that's talking about feasting and God removing the veil from our eyes. Jesus is connecting himself to that idea. He's saying, I didn't come to bring a fast. I came to bring a feast. Now, is it true that God's people today can do and should fast? Absolutely. There's no specific command in the New Testament that we have to fast or fast at certain times or fast in certain ways, but we should do that as part of our disciplines to know the Lord better. But here's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying when people fasted, they were showing their desperation for God. Jesus is saying here, I am the God that all of those people were longing for. He said they denied themselves food to know God better. 
And he says, I am the God that they wanted to know. I am the culmination of all the heart's longings to know God here. And Jesus said, it would not be right to starve yourself now. Now is a time to feast. And in saying that, Jesus is saying that everything other than the message of his gospel is going to be incompatible with the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus gives these two really brief, kind of odd parables in verses 16 and 17. The first is about sewing a piece of cloth onto an old garment. He says, you don't take a new piece of cloth. Now, now look, I don't know anything about sewing. So some of y'all are going to have to help me on this. I'm as clueless here as maybe some of the other guys are. But what I understand Jesus is saying is that back in the day, they did not have, you know, uh, polycotton blends and advanced technology and all this kind of stuff. Now, they wore nylon or rayon, but they had just simple garments. And when you wash those garments, they shrink. You ever had that happen? That's a blessing, isn't it? You get it out of the dryer and put it on, and you think, was this made for a Barbie? Did, did, did this shrink, or did I expand? And so, if you have a garment like that, that has already been washed and already shrunk, and it's got a hole, you know, your hole in your robe or whatever, you don't sew a patch of new cloth into that hole. Because what happens when you wash it? That patch shrinks. And then what's happened? You've still got the hole in your robe and you've ruined your new piece of cloth. Then he gives a similar illustration. Maybe a little bit more complicated. He says you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Now I know y'all are Baptists. You only drink on vacation when you ain't going to run anybody from church. And so... You don't get, what's he talking about wine and wineskins? Well, here's what they did back in the day. The, the water was pretty much undrinkable, so they had wine on them almost all the time. And they would carry that wine in, this is nasty, they would carry it in like organs of sheep or goats, like a bladder. Now, you've got to really want to drink to be carrying your booze around, you know, a sheep's bladder, but that's what they did. And as that wine would ferment, the gas would expand that sheep's bladder, right? And so eventually that sheep's bladder is going to dry out. It's going to become kind of brittle and kind of hard. It's going to go as far as it can go. And if you put new wine in an old, brittle sheepskin, what's going to happen? As it ferments and that gas expands, it's going to burst that bladder, and then you've lost your wine skin and you've lost your liquor. Jesus says, my gospel is incompatible with anything else. He said it's incompatible with anything that comes before. Whether it's your religious efforts to reform yourself, or whether like Matthew, your life has been one long list of bad decisions where you have tried to do everything possible to wrestle control of your life away from God. Jesus says, I do not mix. He said, I represent something new. I represent something different. I did not come to patch you up. Jesus says, I came to make you new. And he says, I can't be sewn in. He says, the message of the gospel can't just be patched into an old life. It can't just fit into the brittle old wineskin of religion or sinful decisions. Jesus said, it has to all be new. He says, it has to all be new. Jesus says, I came to do something radically new. What does that mean for us today? It means today that if you are like Matthew, then you are the, precisely the kind of person that Jesus invites to come to him. No matter how sinful, no matter how foolish, no matter how wrong, no matter how hurt you are, Jesus says, you can follow me. I can and will make you new. Jesus can give you a new start today. But it also means for those unlike Matthew, for those who judge the Matthews of the world, Jesus says, you have to be made new. Because I can't fit with your religious performance either. And so this passage of Scripture ends 
Really, it doesn't end. Because if you keep reading in verse number 18, there's going to be an interruption, right? While he was saying these things to him, Jesus is interrupted. And Jesus is going to go on to the next miracle, which Lord willing we'll talk about next week. And it is a good one. It's two for one, actually. But each of them proves that Jesus has come to make us new. Do you need to be made new today? I'm not asking if you need to be made better. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I'm not saying this in pride or in arrogance. This is a Baptist church. We can make you better. We can give you some tips and some skills and some classes. We can make you a whole lot better. We can't make you new. Jesus can make you new. And if you want to be new, if you want to leave here today, here's how remarkable the grace of Jesus is. You can leave here today different as a different person than you walked in. You can be born again. That's Jesus' language. You can be born again. He can make you new. But I wonder how many of you here really do think, you know, I've got just enough of that. I've got just enough of this church stuff where I don't even need Jesus at all. The old me's doing just fine without him. I pray God would let you see your spiritual sickness. It may be that some of y'all really do know Jesus today. You really have been saved. You really have been forgiven. But you have been saved for so long. Listen to me. You have been saved for so long that you've forgotten why you needed Him. And so you live your life judging people that still need Him. Just like the Pharisees did. Saying Jesus don't have a thing for them because they don't deserve it. You can only contribute to Jesus what you contribute to the doctor when you're sick. All you can contribute is your sickness. That's it. But he says, if you will come and you will bring your spiritual sickness to me, he said, I'll make you new. I'll make you whole. And I'll change you. Let's stand together today. We're going to have an invitation. If you need Jesus this morning, I'm going to ask you if you would, after we pray in just a moment, to step out from your seat. I'd be happy to pray with you. There are other people that would love to pray with you. If you just need some time with the Lord, that'd be okay too. But if you come today and you pour out your heart to Him and just say, Jesus, I need to be made new by Your grace, you can find forgiveness through Him. Even if you're self-reliant and you've never realized how much you need Him. Jesus loves Pharisees too. He loves religious people. And He'll save you. But you've got a huge obstacle to overcome if you think you don't need Him. So we're going to pray together today. And we're going to pray that you would see your need for Him. And that you would see that, your grace, that His grace is even greater than your need. Lord, do your work in our hearts. Lord, the diagnosis about all of us is that we are spiritually sick. We are not going to get better. We are going to get worse. Lord, we are separated from You. We are alienated from You in our minds. Distant from You in our hearts. We don't obey You. We don't love You. We don't always trust You. And God, the only hope for us is that You would come and heal us and save us. God, I pray for those that are here that understand their need for You this morning. God, I pray that they would see their need, that they would own their need. They would come to you and confess their need for you as they believe that your grace is greater than their sin, that your grace is greater than their past. But Lord, I also pray for those that have come in this place today. Lord, they have no idea how much they need you. Lord, they might not have heard a thing that's been said about grace or salvation because they're so self-reliant, so proud. Lord, I pray you'd break them. I pray you'd break them. 
bring them to grace and change them. Lord, I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.